All right, everyone, if you could grab your seats. Quiet down. Our scripture reading today is from Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request, and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as you've just heard read, we are at the very end in our study on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So if this is your first time here, welcome. But also, you get the, uh, the TLDR version of the letter of Ephesians this morning, I guess. The too long didn't read, and you're just here for the capstone summary, which in many ways is summed up in that verse right there that we started with. Be strengthened in the Lord and by his vast strength. I think most of us would say, yeah, that's, that'd be nice if I could walk away this morning with nothing else, you know, the headache that it took to get my whole family here. If I could leave with some strength, that would be great. I would be up for that, even if it's just a little bit. But here Paul is saying that we can have vast strength available to us. Now, this morning's sermon is going to serve as sort of a part two, but don't worry, that's okay if you did not miss last Sunday's message, because while they are definitely interlinked with each other, as you see, we'll be coming from the same passage this morning, right? You could say last Sunday's message was more of a defensive message, and this Sunday's message is more of the offensive message. The reason I say that is because, as you heard in our study in Ephesians, you know, unless you listened to last Sunday's sermon on the drive over here this morning, I'll give you the previously on new life, right? That is, we're studying this idea of how do we put on the armor of God? How do we step into this aspect of standing against the schemes of evil and the devil? And how do we fight against the cosmic authorities and powers of darkness? Now, Putting on the armor that we talked about, the ways in which we stand up to the deceiver 
and the temptations of the devil, the accusations of the devil, and even the distractions that come into our way. And we put on the armor of God to withstand all of those, as the scriptures would say here, all of those flaming arrows. That is, unless you put on the armor of God and fortify your soul and deeply change to the point that your reflexes and the very habits of your heart have been changed by all the things that are true about you as a Christian and make them real, where they become like armor on your soul, you will not be able to stand or be strengthened. Now, if last week was defensive, extinguishing the deceptions, the accusations, as well as the distractions that can be employed in our lives, this week would be then, I guess, the offensive portion. That is, we put on this armor of God, not merely defensively, but to actually go out and do something. And the something that Paul calls us to be strengthened to go do is summed up there in verse 18, pray at all times in the spirit. Pray at all times in the spirit. You put the armor on to engage in prayer. That's why in, in so many ways, right, theologians for centuries have described prayer as not the work that you do to get ready to do the work of the church, but that prayer, as Oswald Chambers would even say, is the work of the church. Or as one theologian puts it, that God now enjoins us to fight by prayer, to call upon God as the chief exercise of faith and hope. But that's the TLDR of the book of Ephesians, is that we are called to the chief exercise of faith, and we do that by prayer. Now, maybe you're sitting here this morning as we talk about praying in the Spirit, and you're like, finally, this church is getting spiritual. This is what I've been waiting for. All they do around here is talk about theology, and maybe every now and then work, and marriage, and the gospel, and more theology. Finally, spiritual warfare right? Standing up to temptation, praying in the spirit. Finally, this church is getting spiritual. And then some of you might be sitting here going, what kind of church did my friends invite me into? That they are going to talk about spiritual warfare? I'm sorry, did he say the devil? Is this like an actual thing that people would believe? I look around this room, these people seem so reasonable, so nice. Some of them went to the same university as me, and they'd believe this. Now, this is why this morning, whatever aspect you may be coming from, we're going to drill into this, this very specific verse in verse 18. Pray all times in the Spirit. What does it mean to pray in the Spirit? If everything we heard last Sunday was to, to set us up to then to engage for how do we pray in the Spirit, what exactly does that mean? So to answer that, we're going to examine at least two things. We're going to examine... What does it require? What do we need in order to be able to pray in the Spirit? And then that will lead us to actually then answering the question. Our second point will be, so then what exactly does it mean to pray in the Spirit? So to that end, let's go to our first question, and that is to say, what does it require? That might be a weird way to start because you say, why don't you just start with telling us what it means, right? But in order to actually answer what it means, I think it's going to be helpful to understand 
what does it require? What's going to go into making this possible to actually pray in the Spirit? What are the prerequisites, you could say? That there are prerequisites to praying in the Spirit, and if you do not have them, even trying to answer the question or even coming at the answer of, okay, well then let's talk about what exactly does it mean to do it, it will not make sense to you or you won't have the full picture of it. So what does it mean? Now, I need to give a very quick disclaimer. Everything that I'm going to share this morning, I have borrowed and stolen and begged from older dead saints because in many ways, as we talk about praying in the Spirit, I will just let you know a novice would be an understatement. Right? To, to talk about praying in the Spirit, were you to come and join me for a week in my own prayer life, you'd be like, I'm not sure I... I'm not sure that that's what that means, right? You keep using that word, but I don't think that means what it think, think it means. Um, I'll just be totally honest that everything that I have comes from researching and begging other saints to impart their wisdom upon me. Now, I don't say all of that to just destroy all my credibility, <laughs> though maybe it did. I say that because I actually think that's the place all of us need to and in many ways get to start. So this is not going to be a, you, you are bad at prayer, <laughs> to put it lightly. You're bad at prayer. Get better at prayer, right? And stop being so bad at prayer. You should be ashamed. You're bad at prayer. And here's how to get better at prayer. Because I'm, I'm not, if not right next to you, I am behind you in many ways of how do we pray in the Spirit. But like I said, I think that's actually where our starting point needs to happen. That our starting point needs to come from a place of weakness. Because it's only in weakness that we will be strengthened with the vast strength that God provides. So as I said, what is, what is praying in the Spirit requires? In order to even get close to praying in the Spirit, you first have to come with weakness and humility. You will never be strengthened from a place of strength. The Christian life, even as Pastor Jeff said during our time of confession, is not from going from strength to strength. It is actually only ever receiving strength by first going into weakness. Now, to prove this point, let me ask you to pay attention to the order of our passage this morning. How was it set up? Was it set up with pray in the Spirit so that you could put the armor on? And that prayer is the way to put the armor on. Or was it set up with put the armor on so then, then you can go and engage in the spirit? That may seem like an obvious point, but you see, that is actually the point. That there is an order. There is a prerequisite to it. Notice that each piece of the armor of God is exactly that. It's of God. It's not put on the armor of your own self-determination, of your own self-discipline of your own well-worn habits, right, that you have stacked and tracked and combined, right? It is not put on your life hacks. It is of God. Now, I think this is, gives us a great freedom because it starts with each piece of the armor being of God. It's the truth of God, the righteousness of God, the gospel of peace of God, the shield of faith that comes from God, the helmet of salvation, and the word of God. And look at those two bookends. It starts with the belt of truth and ends again with the word of God. That all of it comes from 
God. So we can know that prayer is not us coming to God in our own strength to say with mighty requests before the Lord. But instead, prayer starts as us coming in weakness, needing God's protection, God's revelation, that prayer for us is responding to God. It is not trying to get God to respond to us. And that, actually, I think if if we could hold on to that, would really set us free. So that prayer isn't a you're bad at it, get better at it. But instead, prayer is the freedom now that we have in just responding to a God who has already reached out to us. You see, prayer really is, in many ways, not something you can just perform. I mean, you can perform it, but actually in performing it, you can totally miss the point of it. Here's what I mean. Even in Isaiah chapter 29, the Lord says to Israel, these people come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. Near me with their mouth, honor me with their lips. So they're great at praying, but their hearts are far from me. You see, prayer is not an abstract thing to do because you can do prayer and you can get it all wrong. That's why underneath it is something more vital than just pragmatics, which we can get into. But at the start of it, we have to go back to that definition that I said earlier, which is prayer is the chief exercise of faith and hope, as John Calvin would write in his Institutes. Then in other words, prayer is the primary way we express true faith. Now, I believe this is the common denominator across all religions, across all cultures, across all centuries, that if you were to boil down, what is prayer, just from a sociological standpoint? Like, what is this thing humans do that they call prayer? If you were studying the species, I think ultimately it comes down to the fact that even in its weakest form or even in its strongest, most fervent, most dedicated and disciplined form, that underneath all of it, is ultimately a response to the sense of divinity that we all have. This is why someone who's maybe even an atheist, all the way down to someone who is the most disciplined monk, would all, in a sense, have this instinct to pray, that it arises in us, and it comes out of a sense of divinity. Now, of course, the greater degree to which you sense that divinity or you have this image of that divinity, it's going to inform how you approach God in prayer. And you see, that's exactly the problem. Is that in many ways, we can construct a God and an image just to suit our own purposes. And you see, what praying in the Spirit requires us to do is, again, it requires the humility to acknowledge that we cannot create a God just to suit our purposes. But instead, we have to come to the God who has revealed himself in the spirit, the very word of God, the truth wrapped around us like a belt. This is why if you were to just look at the titles of some of the most famous works on prayer and knowing God, they're, they're simple Eugene Peterson's Answering God. That's the title. J.I. Packer, Knowing God. Right, as Tim Keller would say in his book, the clearer our understanding of God, the better our prayers will be. You know, Packer puts it this way. He says, there certainly is great cause for humility in the thought that God sees all the twisted things about me and that my fellow humans do not see, which I'm glad for. 
and that he sees more corruption in me than I even see in myself, which in all conscience is enough. There is, however, an equally great incentive to worship and to love God in the thought that for some unfathomable reason, he wants me as his friend. He desires to be my friend, and he has given his son to die for me in order to realize this purpose. You see, it takes great humility to surrender to God's own self-disclosure, his truth, to submit to it. But if you can actually let God be God and begin to understand and grasp the person that he's revealed himself to be, that the truth is around you like a belt, the sword of the spirit, that is the word of God, all of this begins to inform who God is and how he's reached out to you. That then forms the basis where in that weakness, in that humility of saying, God, I need you to tell me, you then get to be strengthened with the realization that as Packer says, for some unfathomable reason, he wants me as his friend. He desires to be my friend and has given his son to die for me in order to realize this purpose. And if you look at verses 19 through 20, Paul is the very model of this when he says, pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say that I don't think Paul was being fake in his prayer request. But I think in this, there is the real fear from Paul that he would not be bold. And that there was the real admission of understanding how his heart could be weak and his faith could fail him. And therefore, he asks for prayer to be bold. That he would be, as he says, an ambassador in chains. And that he would be bold enough to speak as he should. I don't think he's like, oh yeah, you know, humble bragging. Like, oh yeah, and by the way, if you could pray for me because I'm sharing the gospel all the time with people. No, I think he is really saying, look, this is a fight that I'm in. And that even Paul is starting from a place of weakness because he knows in that place that's where he will receive true strength. So that's the prerequisite. that We have to start from a place of humility. But in that humility, we will find strength, the vast strength of the Lord to pray in the Spirit. And so... What does it actually mean then to pray in the Spirit, where we started this thing? What would it mean? Well, what if I told you that it wasn't something you had to achieve, a state that you had to work yourself up into, but that instead, because of everything we've just talked about in our prerequisite, that when you approach God in humility and weakness, crying out to him, receiving the strength that he provides, the love that he provides, that you can understand that ultimately this is a state that you get to enjoy. If I could sum it up this way, praying in the spirit means a personal encounter with God. The real God who has disclosed himself to us. This is why the prerequisite is so necessary. If you come to God with your own preconceived notions of who he is and you don't let him tell you who he is, 
then of course you'll never be able to truly pray in the spirit because you won't have a real encounter with the real God. But if you can humble yourself, admit your weakness, and come to God, asking for the armor to become real and around you, for his strength, for his self-revelation, that you can then begin to have a personal encounter with the living God. See, this is why J.A. Packer calls his book Knowing God. And Eugene Peterson says, answering God. The Calvin would say, it's just exercising our faith and our hope in the true God. That knowing is a matter, ultimately, of a personal two-way communication. So as Packer says, knowing God is more than just knowing about him. It is a matter of dealing with him as he opens up to you and being dealt with him as he then takes knowledge of you. Friends open their heart to each other by what they say and what they do. It's a two-way communication. So he goes on. So we must not lose sight of the fact that knowing God is an emotional relationship. Did you hear that, Presbyterians? Knowing God is an emotional relationship, as well as an intellectual and volitional one, and could not indeed be a deep relation between persons were it not so. Believers rejoice when their God is honored and vindicated and feel the acutest distress when they see God flouted. You see, you become so invested in God that emotionally it affects you. This is why we said last Sunday that the armor of God is fortifying your soul to the point that the very habits of your heart, the reflexes of your soul begin to change. They begin to change into a person who is loved and secured in the Lord because he has the armor of God. This is why Keller would say that the power of our prayers lies not then primarily in our effort and striving or any technique that we could come up with in our knowledge, but ultimately it's found in our knowledge of God. That that's where the power of our prayers are found. That praying in the spirit is praying in a personal encounter with God. So Michael Reeves has a little pamphlet. He's the, an author and Trinitarian scholar, but he has a little pamphlet that's pretty helpful entitled, Enjoying Your Prayer Life. And in there he says, in one sense, your prayer life is disgustingly revealing. It's like, wait, I thought it was supposed to be enjoying your prayer life. <laughs> I already knew that. Right? Why would you tell me that? The, the, but track with it. Our prayer lives reveal for us what spirit we think we're praying in, to use Paul's terminology here. That your prayer life reveals how much you really want communion with God and how much you really depend on him. And that's why it is disgustingly or terrifyingly revealing. It absolutely does not tell you about your security in God, thankfully. But it does tell us about how much of a baby we are, how much of a hypocrite you are, and how much you actually love the Lord, end quote. Fabulous. So is this the part in the sermon where it's your bad at prayer, get better at prayer? Is that where this is going? No, I don't think so. Because if you're encountering the real God, you actually do so from that standpoint. Remember, this is a Trinitarian scholar who then goes on to say, don't be dismayed. 
you're not the odd one out in your struggle. It's not your secret shame. You're just a sinner naturally inclined away from faith and prayer. We're all sinners. And you know who the friend of sinners is? Jesus. You see, this is how we begin to encounter the real God. How to pray in the Spirit is in many ways we just pray the way Jesus did. Because when we pray and we come to Jesus, it changes the way we pray. He is, after all, Emmanuel, God with us, the one who reveals that. And when we look at his life and in his ministry, he's praying all the time. When he's full of joy, he's praying. When he's making a decision, he's praying. When he's in agony, he's praying. He's always, always praying. And Jesus' prayers show us who he really is. Because he says in John 5, Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. The Son always depends on the Father. And therefore, he's always enjoyed communion with the Father. So here's what this means. That if Jesus is the first prayer, he's the first one who prays, and the salvation that he brings is ultimately sharing the communion that he has with God the Father with us, prayer is ultimately learning to enjoy what Jesus has always enjoyed for all eternity. And that's what it means to pray in the Spirit, is to pray like Jesus and enjoy the communion that Jesus enjoyed. And so you could go another step further then. So that means praying to God like he is our Father. After all, in the Lord's Prayer, this is the first line, our Father. When you pray, say our Father. That's the first thing Jesus would want us to know. And it transforms everything about prayer because God is inviting us again into a personal encounter with him. It's not just a set of rules or regulations that we, a code that we can adopt and techniques that we can use. All of those have their place, don't get me wrong. But in the spirit means a personal encounter with God, our Father, the way Jesus did, the way that he taught us to. So again, to go back to J.I. Packer, he says this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much they make of the thought of being God's child and having God as their father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls their worship and prayers and the whole outlook on life, it means you do not understand Christianity very well at all. You see, that's why it's a personal encounter. And what's more personal than calling God Father? Now, I've talked about how the Son helps us how the Father is the communion that we're brought into, but you're like, wait, hold on a second. How, where's this whole pray in the Spirit piece? Can we talk about the Holy Spirit? Well, I think that's what's so helpful here is that because as we need to lean into God in prayer, we do so with the prerequisite that we do it dependently, right? Out of a point of weakness, from a point of humility. And so if God was a single independent person, then, of course, the height of spiritual maturity would be totally independent. But God is not a single independent person. He is this triunity, as we've talked about in the book of Ephesians, and thus interdependent within one another, fully God. And yet, so a Christian first and foremost, then, in godliness, the height of it is dependence. 
again, like a child is on their father. And so when you don't feel needy, when you don't pray much, when you lose your grip on reality, right, and think or act in an unchristian way, as you grow as a Christian, you don't feel more self-sufficient. You should feel less self-sufficient. And that's where the Spirit comes in. It's because it is through the Spirit that we cling to God in dependence. Jesus is our model on this. Everything he did was in the Spirit. Jesus, as Luke records, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father. And then Paul would write in Romans chapter 8, The Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Or as my favorite in verse 26 when it says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. Finally, someone gets me. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Isn't that an enormously helpful verse? (laughs) That while there may be so many techniques, and you can go by Operation World, and you can download the prayer apps for your phone, and you can have a bullet journal, and you can do the whole thing, right? And adopt all the systems and life hacks and rules of life that are out there. All very helpful. Ultimately, when all else fails, we have the Spirit who, when we don't even know what to pray for or how to pray, is praying for us. That means we don't need to pretend to be giants in prayer. We don't have to pretend that we are going to make all these resolutions today that are just way out of our league, right? The Spirit knows our weakness. And so we get to come in and just simply stammer before God the way a baby can just cry out to his parents. We don't have to try to be impressive. To really drive this point home, I'll end with this. In C.S. Lewis's work called The Screwtape Letters, right, which if you've never read before, is basically a, a junior demon being mentored by a senior demon, right, on how to torment the guy that he's around and his patient, so to speak. And when they come to, I believe it's in chapter four, the point on prayer, these are the instructions that the senior demon gives to his junior or his nephew. He says, wherever there is prayer, there is danger of God's own immediate action. God is cynically indifferent to the dignity of his position and ours as pure spirits, and to human animals on their knees, he pours out self-knowledge in a quite shameless fashion. Again, there's a demon who's criticizing God for the fact that whenever a human turns to him, God is shameless to pour himself out to them. You see, this is why we can know that we don't make friends with God, it's God who makes friends with us, and that we come to him on the basis of grace. All of this is to tell us that the prerequisite for praying in the Spirit is that we have to come in humility and weakness to receive strength. And you will receive strength when you come. And that in praying in the Spirit, we do so not instinctively just out of some vague sense of divinity. Like, help me, God. Those are appropriate prayers. 
but we get to do so in complete dependence and in complete knowledge of who God is. Because after all, when it says in here, and take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, we could all answer, that, answer this question, what is the Word of God? We would say the Bible. You'd be absolutely right, and that's why we need to be people of the Bible. But you could also ask, who is the Word of God? Because as John says, Jesus is the Word. That we come to God in a personal encounter. That's what it means to pray in the Spirit. So, as I survey the room, you don't look completely exhausted yet. And that the cold, hard chairs haven't made your left side of your buttocks numb. So, let me wrap up with this then. You may be thinking, okay, but come on. Can you give us some, some things for how to, do, how to do this thing called prayer? How do we do it? What does it look like? Well, quickly, I'll go through three of them. And that is the what, the when, and the who. The what, when, and the who. All right, because those are all right here in our text. What to pray for says every prayer request. You say, well, that covers it. Check. Next one. Well, I think you can say this is all kinds of prayers. This is why I think the Nehemiah prayers or the Peter in the ocean prayers, the Lord help prayers, like those are fine, those two second prayers. But it's also those formal prayers, the, the ones that we have praying in front of people, the prayers written on the back of your worship program or prayers you could find in a prayer book like the Valley of Vision. Those are all absolutely acceptable. And then we, you know, talk a lot about kind of different ways in which you can think about praying through God's revealed word, that when you come to God's word, you can think, we say this with our, our kids all the time, and if you ever pick up one of the kids' sermon sheets, you'll see this on there, what can we say thank you to God for? What can we say sorry to God for? What can we say please to God for? Right? And what can we say wow to God for? I think, you know, I, so I tell the little kids when I teach the class, right, use your polite words. Sorry, thank you, please. That we can come to God in those. Now, we have, we have adult words for those too, right? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. So you've maybe heard the acronym ACTS. But while either all of those are helpful, I would like to, for you to make sure to ground all of those in the fact that it is a personal encounter. So it is coming to God, and I believe it's Ligon Duncan who says, right, that when you come to God with small prayers or small adorations, you will receive small comforts. But if you come to a God who deserves big adorations, you will receive even bigger comforts. That when we encounter a God who's personally worthy of our worship, that's where we receive the real comfort. The same for confession. It's not that I broke the rules or I broke the code or I strayed from the way, right? But instead it's a, I've hurt a relationship. I've hurt a person. And so confession is not, you better run to God and tell him the bad thing you did before your older brother does, right? But confession is, you get to be the one to come and repair a relationship with God. The same for Thanksgiving, right? I mean, we all just went through Thanksgiving. I mean, let's face it. When you get that question of, okay, let's go around the table. What is everyone thankful for? As cynical as you may be, there's a little bit of you that when you eventually say it, you're like, oh, I guess I am thankful, right? Even the most hearted cynic, when they engage in thankfulness, right, is there. And same for supplications. 
So I love the way Kevin DeYoung talks about what to pray for. He, he gives this question for us, right? What big thing have you not taken to God because you've just given up hope on it? And what little thing have you not thought worthy enough to take to God because, of course, you have given up hope on it? So those are the what's of prayer. Well, when should we pray? Well, he says it here. Notice the time frames that were given in the text. When should we pray? In the evil day, having prepared everything, in every situation, pray at all times, stay alert with all perseverance. That is, you are to always be praying. Now, that may seem weird because you're like, well, when should I pray? I guess I should always pray. Well, does that mean, does that mean you don't really need your own set time of prayer, but you can just kind of walk around with an attitude of gratitude? You can tell by the tone of my voice, I don't think that, all right? But it, I do believe there are set times of prayer. Jesus, again, is our model in this. But I also believe that this means every situation is a point of prayer. Every situation is a point where you can engage in that two-way communication. And that prayer is the way we do that spiritual battle. So let's talk about, hypothetically, maybe at some point this week, you will become impatient. Very small battle. That doesn't seem like a big thing you need to put armor on for. And you got to say, no, 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 no. And even the small things, in all things, we always have reason for prayer. When's a good time to pray? Always, in every situation. And so because of that, that means that when you get cut off or when someone is not responding as you would like them to and you want to lose your patience or you begin to think, what, an idiot? Right there, you can see the battle taking place. And it's right in there that the two-way communication begins to be in. Where you go, you know what, God? The way that I feel about this person who is trying my patience, how much more should I be trying yours? How much more do I give you reason to be impatient with me? And yet you aren't. And you begin to have that two-way communication that even in those little battles, right? We could do this over and over, but each one of those plays into it. And then who to pray for? All the saints. Again, Kevin DeYoung gives us a great question on this in his book on the armor of God. He says, if all your prayers came true for everyone in this room this week, how different would their lives be? How different would their lives be? Now, I told you, because when you hear a question like that, you may think, ha, I knew this was going to be the you're bad at prayer, get better at prayer sermon, even though you told us it wasn't. Well, this is why I think, you know, it's very easy to come away from a sermon on prayer where you just feel crushed and inadequate and unable to conceive how anyone could pray sufficiently. And that that must be for those super Christians who can, you know, achieve that super Saiyan level of praying in the spirit, right? That somehow they can level up to that point. You know, they've learned it. But that's not it. Because if prayer really is simply responding to God in a personal way, crying out to your heavenly father with thanksgiving, with requests, with intercessions, with confession, with repentance, right? And if you do this with, with the idea that this is now a job description you've been handed, 
that you need to do this in the spirit, all times, for all people, with every prayer, that is going to wear you out. Because it's literally all times for all people in every moment. Like, how would that not wear you out? The exhaustive nature of it would be exhausting unless it's a personal encounter. That you understand that you are a child of the great king. And that you live before the presence of Jesus. And that by the power of his spirit, he's lifting your hearts, your minds, your voices regularly to him. And that Jesus' perfect prayer life is not something you and I will ever have. But yet we have it because he did it for us. Jesus prayed for us. Jesus' prayer life was for us, and we're told even now in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, that he ever lives to make intercession for you. And that the Spirit, even when you don't know what to pray for, prays on your behalf with words, too, with groans too deep even for words. And so my encouragement is that while there might be apps there might be books, and there are lots of great things you could learn that ultimately what you get to walk away with into this week now is understanding that you really can pray in the Spirit because God's Spirit has come to you because of what Jesus has done and how the Father has revealed himself to us. So let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to put on the belt of truth, to have it fastened, that righteousness like armor on our chest and our feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace, that in every situation we could take up the shield of faith to extinguish all the flaming arrows of deception, temptation, accusation, and distraction, that the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, would all move to be strengthening us by the Lord and his vast strength, in whose name we pray. Amen.